Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, it's the first Tuesday of the month, which means it's time for Straight Talk with Dr. Doug Lyle, where he answers your questions that you've submitted to me in advance at help at chefaj.com. Get on the mailing list. We send out the schedule every week. You just respond with your question. If you want it to be anonymous, say it in the first line, because it's sure embarrassing if I read the whole thing. And then it says that was supposed to be anonymous. So we'll dive right into the questions. We've got so many, we won't get to most of them probably. So we'll probably end up having another Dugathon soon where we'll do a monster three hour Q&A and try to blast through all of them. How are you, Dr. Lyle? Good. All is well. Good. You're so good at this. This is like, I mean, I feel like I could do this 24 hours a day with you. I mean, because there's just so many questions and people learn so much from you. And it almost seems like you can't unwind any topic, at least a little bit and give some perspective to it. It's like your, it's like your superpower. Well, <clears throat> it's been, been doing it a long time, AJ. Yeah, it's it's just it's just I love watching you work. It's just really fun for me. So thank you. So the first question is from Ruth and she says, this is an odd question, but here I go. If you are a 57 year old woman who is whole food plant based SOS free, you'd been single for a while, a long time. Where would you go and what would you do to find a partner? Would you mention that you were vegan on a dating website or leave it till the first date? Is this deceitful? Should you be upfront from the get-go? Would you suggest dating a staunch carnivore? I have hobbies and I'm always pushing myself out of my comfort zone, such as doing a stand-up comedy course, learning the piano, dance classes, nutritional gatherings, vegan or whole food plant-based speed dating. I love learning and I feel that I've worked on myself. I've had plenty of time to do that. I'm hoping to reboot my love life as well as my health. Yeah. Um... Let's see what what would I do. I would certainly, um, you, you'd certainly want to use the the uh, the platforms that are out there and find uh, at least one you know, one one a big issue. It depends on how big a city people are in. So if you're in a relatively small city, then you may need to go on two or three of these platforms. If you're on a really in a big city. You'd, you know, if you're in a, something the size of Sacramento, you'd only go on one that would give you, you know, all, all the all the hassle that you could hassle. So the uh, I, I would say there's a you know, there's some tips about how it is to work those those uh, websites intelligently. In other words, uh, I sure as heck wouldn't be saying I was vegan or vegetarian in, in my uh, thing, because that's not a that's not here's what we want to, there's a way to be thinking about this. The, um, with, with kind of everything in life, uh, certainly any business and any romance process or friendship or almost anything you can think of, what you want to be is you want to be open enough, uh, in order to, uh, it, it, it's kind of like, you know, open enough to, to, uh, have opportunity but closed enough to not have to, to have just uh, too much junk come in. So in your in a paragraph where you describe yourself, you can communicate quite a bit about your health consciousness. That's all we care about. So people. Um, I'm not going to say that that's true of everybody, but this 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 writer uh, 
is not someone there are there are people that are so um animal rights concerned that it is that it is impossible for them that they don't have a choice about this it's not about them being inflexible it's it's in their soul they can't be with anybody that that is not aligned with them like linda yeah. middlesworth yes there are or people me, or me or me actually yeah i think you're this i think you're similar in other words you you would be slightly more flexible than linda on a few items but you, there's no way you're going to live with somebody that's going to eat animal products um and jen hawk is that way she can't she can't go that direction and uh uh, so I have friends that they cannot go uh, that they so you might as well make that clear if that's who you are. But most of us are not there. In other words, most of us uh, don't need to be that narrow. And if you have to be that narrow, um, it's just it's a little bit of a curse. You know what I mean? It's just it's like it's too bad because there are wonderful people that are not going to adopt this wholeheartedly in the same way, but it, it doesn't matter. Uh, in other words, if you happen to be have that chip in your head, we might as well acknowledge it. And then we have to get the funnel uh, or the net, you know, built the way that's proper for you. But in this case, that person isn't isn't thinking along those lines. They're not they're not built that way. So you would definitely not tell the world that you're vegan or vegetarian. The uh, there's no upside to it. All it does is rule you out for some people who wouldn't know that they wouldn't rule you out if they met you and they were to listen to you talk or explain why it is that you do the things that you do in a real casual, pleasant, health supportive fashion. And they might say, well, I don't, I didn't think that that was true. And it's like, well, I'm not sure it's true either, but it seems like it's, uh, it seems like it's the right direction. I.e. Doug Lyle's scene strategy. Okay. So, so that's how I would do that. And I would otherwise describe myself, uh, in the in the ways that were uh, consistent uh, with you know what would be an, an honest and reasonable picture of myself. So uh, we're not trying to win an award on you know Facebook or whatever these people do uh, to try to look like they're cool and that they're always having a great time and have fancy wine in their hand or whatever it is that these people do. Don't do it. You be yourself and uh, describe yourself. Uh, you know, accurately and describe yourself accurately in your photography, which your photography should be good, uh, but it, it, it should be uh, very moderately flattering, but not too much. In other words, uh, that's how it should be. And, and take quite a few pictures. Uh, have somebody either have, have somebody take a bunch of pictures of you. I think every, you know, I don't think they need to see 10 selfies with your looking up at a camera. Have, you know, figure out how to work your own camera so we can use the little timer on it and get yourself, take yourself a bunch of pictures and then take the six or seven best ones uh, and post them on your on your site. And that's that. Another thing that I would do is that if I was in a fairly big city uh, and you got uh, you got a fair amount of of traffic um, depends on who you are and what your circumstances are. I would probably meet those people by Zoom first. In other words, just let's not go to the trouble when of going to all this hassle of getting dressed up and going going out and driving and meeting somebody and paying for parking or whatever the whole the whole shindig is. And then it's like, huh, 
if it turns out that you would have ruled them out in two minutes uh, in, in a conversation, then just save yourself the trouble. You know, that's the, the beauty of the new world uh, post-COVID is, is Zoom. So, you know, or FaceTime or what, however it is that we do this, that that's a legitimate way to say hello for uh, even if it's a five or 10 minute conversation. So that's what I would do. And uh, yeah, and then and go looking. And, uh, the, 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 and, and another tip is, hey, if they're not, if it's, if it's not working, don't try to make it work. Throw them back in the pond and go on to the next one. You're, you're keep, yeah, keeping yourself from maybe meeting somebody special by, by fiddling around and trying to make something work that doesn't work. I'll see people do that. Uh, so, you know, be ruthless. Well, her name is Ruth, so she can be ruthless. But yeah, that that I was thinking this along the same lines of you when she called herself whole food plant based SOS free. She didn't call herself vegan, so she might be open to more um, possibilities than me or yeah. Linda. Not not that either of us are looking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I want to point out something just as a as a concept, and that is that you're you're not looking for whole foods plant-based people you're looking for people who are health conscious that is the personality characteristic that matters okay it matters whether or not you're health they're health conscious if they're not health conscious if their attitude about that is sideways then there's going to be no hope but if they're health conscious then that's that is the characteristic that we're seeking we're not seeking whole foods, plant-based people. Those are one in 5,000. That's a, that's ruling out a huge percentage of the people that you would ever be interested in. So keep that in mind. The, uh, I'm trying to think, yeah, it's a long story, but no, uh, that, that's the correct way of looking about uh, uh, at the problem. Thank you. All right. You know, there are vegan dating apps, and I know at least three people that have used them with quite a great deal of success and either are married or have long-term partners from them. I wouldn't rule that out, but it's such a small group. In other words, so if you're living in Los Angeles, there's going to be nine people on that thing. So, you know, that's that's the problem. It's not that there's a problem with it in principle. It's just that the, the net isn't wide enough. Right. And there is a lady that's been on the show twice that actually is the vegan matchmaker. And of course, people know about my uh, abilities that I have used on the side with many of the guests on this show. And as I continue to do, thanks mm -hmm. so much. All right. We have the next question from Anki. Dr. Lyle, I met my husband more than 30 years ago when I had been a vegetarian for 15 years. He is a real carnivore, loves food and drink, loves cooking and eating out. Six months ago, I started eating vegan and I would actually rather give up alcohol. This makes eating out increasingly difficult and different meals are prepared at home three times a day. I'm afraid that we are becoming increasingly annoyed with each other, but I hope that a different lifestyle eating style will not become a reason to break up what to do. Have you seen people break up over this, Dr. Law? Um, I would say, I, I don't know. I don't think that I have. I think that, um, I think it's important, probably the most important uh, issue here it, there's, is that this, this is right out of my lecture, getting along without going along. So if you need to go, go to my website and and look at this lecture or wherever it's posted. I, I know 
it, it must have been done at least in a webinar form. I think it's, I think a video of me doing getting along without going along is, is on the esteemed dynamics website. The, um, and the story is this, in other words, this is all about esteem processes. So it's all about him feeling like you're looking down on him. That that's the only thing that's going to get us into trouble. And so it's important that that is, that is the key issue. If you are looking down on him, then you got to have to explore that and understand that reasonable people have reason to believe that the truth is really not known and that the truth is not that, you know, put it this way, whole foods, plant-based people aren't living to 97 <clears throat> and everybody else is dying at 67. That is not true. It's not happening. <clears throat> it's not true that whole foods, plant-based people are living to 87 and everybody else is only living to 77. That's not true either. Okay. So the, the truth is, is that the longevity issues look like they're about three and 3.6 years. It's like, well, that's pretty hard to spot when you're 57. It's like, really? So you're telling me that if I do it your way, I'm going to live 30 years. But if I do it my way, I'm going to live 26 and a half. Um, maybe I'll take my chances. Okay. So in other words, it's not so graphically obvious that we're right. Uh, um, we know because we've been educated and you've read John McDougal and Colin Campbell and and it's like, okay, and we we you talk to us. We know that we have actually us doctors that are in the field have have seen a huge percent high percentage of individuals that come to us sick and we reverse their heart disease and cancer, not cancer, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in the case of uh Terminal Health Center. But the um but this is uh, so, you know, so we see evidence of it and you trust us that we're not lying to you. Um, and we are telling the truth on that. However, remember that having some diabetes and some obesity and some high cholesterol and some high blood pressure isn't the same thing as dying. Okay. So the, uh, so as a result of that, it's not unreasonable for him to think that he's right. He's seen a lot of people that look off good looking people that are strong and lean that are eating meat with both hands. He's seen it. And so as a result of that, uh, let's not make sure that we're not looking down on these people um, because they think differently than we think. That would be a mistake. Um, now, uh, so there are, therefore, the, the most important uh, position that you would take with an intimate partner like this is that, hey, I'm not sure who's right. I've just, I just have my my intuition is telling me that this is a good way to go, but I'm not, you know, I don't know for sure. Yeah, you don't know for sure. You you don't know for sure. You're confident, but you are not sure. Uh, you better not be sure because you actually haven't done the science with your own two eyeballs. Okay, so if you have, then you know, then you're in a position of authority in your own house. It's like, no, I'm a physician for God's sakes. This is what I do for a living. I've seen 1700 cases. Don't tell me that, that, that you know anything. Okay. All right. But you're not that position. So you're somebody that's trusting other people. This is secondhand information. All right. So if it's secondhand information, you shouldn't be sure. You should be confident. You believe that this is true, but are you sure? No, you're not sure. Okay. So that's what we're going to communicate. Hey, I'm not sure these guys are right about everything. I just think it's a good direction. If you keep that attitude, 
and we stop this process uh, from them thinking that you are looking down on them. If they start sniffing that you're looking down on them as self-indulgent and stupid and obstinate and stubborn and argumentative and close-minded, if you signal that attitude, then that is what will make the relationship completely useless. In other words, that's not a relationship anybody wants to be in. So careful, okay? Let's, uh, your, the most important thing that you do to this enterprise as you make any of these changes is humility, humility, humility. That's where you wanna be sitting, okay? If you keep right there in a humble position, then even if they feel a little frustrated and wanna argue with you, you're like, hey, you could be right. You know, what do I know? I'm just following my gut. That's it, okay? And I could be wrong. And if you do that, then, then they, you know, this protects the relationship from that kind of um, acidic acrimony. All right. Very good. Thank you. You know, sometimes I've seen people like at the beginning, it wasn't so hard to coexist, but even if they didn't start out as ethical vegans, they become more ethical and then it gets harder and harder to coexist in, in a relationship like that. Different issue. There's uh, uh, some people creep their way to uh, and stepwise their way to more and more ethical vegan. That's certainly been true for me, but I'll never get to where your friend Linda is. And I'll probably never get to where you are on this issue. So that's genetic. That's just in a person. So um, I am uh, John McDougall and I have been probably pretty similar on that. In other words, he, he didn't start out anywhere near an ethical vegan. And then over the last 30 years, he's, he's moved that direction, but he's, he's still not Linda Middlesworth. There's just not, there's not even close. <laughs> Nobody is. And we Nobody love her. Is. Well, she's yeah, there gonna, is. She's going to be 80 next week and we love her, but yes, she's, she's uh, like the, the premier ethical met, I've met a handful in my life, you know, yeah. and, um, that that's just uh they they don't have a choice they're born that way yeah john pierre is another one like yeah. that yeah they, nice thank you so this is from melissa and she said i had a bad and long relapse on my program after losing 80 pounds following chef aj and maintaining that weight loss for a year it happened when I had to visit my client that is a large candy manufacturer. My employer had assigned the client to me, so it's a difficult situation I'm in. The hotel's corporate office in town piped chocolate smells. I wonder if it's Hershey Town. Mm -hmm. Candy is everywhere. My client handed me a huge bag of all different kinds of candy as a welcome for being a first-time visitor. I didn't want to be rude and refuse my client. My mind told me to throw it away once I got to the hotel, but I succumbed in my room and had a candy feast. My ego got me in the pleasure trap. It took me nine months to get out of the relapse starting this January. I have to visit my client again in April, and I'm very concerned about another relapse and that maybe I will never come out of it. What are the best strategies to protect myself? Well, for one thing, we need a social strategy to deal with the, the welcoming, friendly, giving client, okay? So um, a good way to do that is to uh, a perfectly good way to do that is to figure out how it is that you can blame Big Louie. So um, you could say, well, you know, my doctor says that I need to, you know, for, for the next little while, I need to uh, keep my eye on, on this kind of stuff and I need to skip it for a while until I get some better numbers. 
There. Okay. They don't need to know any more than that. What doctor? Well, Dr. Doug Lyle just said that you, be, you better get some better numbers. So we better just skip over that for a little while until you get some better numbers. There. Now you're telling the truth. Okay. So, uh, so that's a, we blame big Louie. So we're not refusing their candy and we're not thinking it's dangerous or, or anything else. It's just that, no, my, my doctor said, uh, I need to, I need to get some better numbers than I'm carrying. So now I'm going to, I'm going to have to decline this time around. Looks, looks fabulous. Okay. Now, uh, you, you know, it's great stuff. That's it. Okay. And then that, so that's, that's the biggest thing that we can do is get you ready for that little social push, okay? And they'll be fine with it. In other words, you indulged last year and they knew that and, and you can sing its praises again, uh, but you defend yourself with Big Louie, which is good because if you state that, then your integrity's on the line and won't even let you crack in front of them. In other words, it's like that. Eh, you kind of, you know, or you could promise your doctor, eh, I promised my doctor I'd, I'd tow the line here the next couple of months till I got better numbers. That's actually better. Now, now we've got a, a little bit of a moral high ground with your own integrity that we can't, we can't cheat, cheat and slip around the corners. So that's good. All right. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's actually interesting. It, it's an interesting, uh, these are very, very interesting events, by the way, when you have somebody do really well and then, they have one binge, and then it just it's like the floodgates open. And um, it's it's not necessarily a typical story, but it's one that we've heard a lot of times. And uh, we're not really exactly sure the reasons for this. Uh, I believe that there are at least two. So I believe that the um, that certainly that the pleasure trap. Uh, is, you know, a big component of this, obviously. In other words, so um, a basically a, a highly sensitized palate that hasn't seen the rich food now gets gets a snoot full of it. And now now I, it's back in season. And now that now they're going to repeat it a bunch of times and then they're going to habituate to it and then they're back in the trap. So that's one that that's a good enough explanation. Um, but I believe also that what we wind up with is a pretty crushing ego trap. So the person did really well, and then they didn't. And their their internal expectations are that they should be able to, uh, but they're finding themselves swimming against the pleasure trap. And it's like they forgot how hard the current was. And so um, then what will happen is that they will quit um, in basically throw up their hands with the yeah, heck with it. Okay. And this is a, um, that attitude is actually a defensive maneuver for your own status to your own internal audience. It's like, you can't judge me, uh, on how self-indulgent I'm being and my ability to actually get out of this trap because I'm not really trying. So I, I believe that those two things, both the pleasure trap and the ego trap, which is what that is. In other words, I'm not so sure I can live up to my own expectations, so I'm not even going to attempt it. Okay, and I'm gonna make it very clear to myself that I'm not trying. Okay, so this is where we get some sort of hell-bent, self-destructive self-indulgence. And I believe that that is a secondary and you know ancillary 
motivational force that actually makes this problem particularly pernicious. So that's what I, you know, I'm guessing, but it didn't, it could have been one or the other, or it could have been both. It could, could just be the pleasure trap, but I have a feeling sometimes there's a defeated, you know, frustrated and a little bit overwhelmed and basically challenge avoidant um, aspect of this problem that happens. And i.e., it's called what I call kicking over the table. It's kind of like when you're losing a monopoly game, you know, and then you just kick over the table. Like I, yeah, I quit. I'm not trying. That's it. I, you win. And I think that that is a, that's an additional aspect when you have this kind of thing, because it's a little bit odd that the person with that much self-discipline and that big of a track record that, you know, one day or two or three days, one or two day or two or three days does not habituate your taste buds away from whole natural food. It won't. Okay. So literally all it would take is get yourself hungry for six hours and then sit down to a bunch of good, healthy food and it will taste just fine. So the, uh, it takes weeks for the pleasure trap to actually habituate out, you know, and adulterate you know, taste sensitivity. So there has to be more to it. One of it is that the hyperpalatable food is motivating its own chain reaction. But I believe that the ego um, trap is also in there. Awesome. I think it's significant. All right. Let's go All on. All right. Next question is from, where did it go? Her name is Emily. Sorry, I was just listening and I wasn't looking at my questions. Come on, come on, come on. Oh, I saw it. I saw it. I saw it. There's just, oh, here it is. Okay. All righty. She says, that. A bird just hit the window. We have decals, but they still do it. Mm -hmm. Hey, that's scary. Dr. Lyle, what are some ways that I can encourage my family, mainly husband and kids, to join me in a whole food plant-based lifestyle without being pushy? I've never had that problem not being pushy. <laughs> um, I think all that you can do is, is you know, whatever it is that you're making, uh, I, I'd have two, two concepts there. One of a, whatever it is that you're making, make extra of it so that it's more important that, um, hmm, let, let's back, let's, let's back the thing, this thing up for a minute. The first thing is, is that very few people will ever have whole foods, plant-based lifestyle. So it's probably not your husband. It's probably not your children. So the, um, you can encourage, you can show, but this is kind of like you love playing the piano and you want your husband and your children to love playing the piano. And they're like, you know what? I just don't like playing the piano that much. I don't mind sitting down and learning a few chords and, you know, uh, goofing around on it once in a while, but actually I'm not into it. Okay. And that the, uh, that is the, the way you want to look at this. This is this is more of a hobby fascination than it is anything else. So the, uh, unfortunately what's happened, uh, some of, you know, over the years, there's been some doctors that have done, um, you know, probably, probably well-meaning but misguided fear-mongering, uh, and basically telling about how disaster it is for your children to have this or that. And the truth is that's not true, you know, yeah, average kid in the United States that's born doesn't die in the first year of its life or so from some terrible accident or problem. 
that 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 creature is probably going to live, you know, 75 to 85 years, no matter what it eats. Okay, so keep that in mind. And it's like, oh, my God, do I got to stop from being obese because it runs in our family and and my kid is nine and he's getting chunky. And so, oh my God, I got to stop it. It's like, no, 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 you don't have to stop it. Yeah, obesity is dynamic. I mean, you've got a fantastic example right here on the screen, for goodness sakes. You know, at any age, the person can turn that around. It has nothing to do with, you know, any little, uh, any little tracks in, in, the, in, in the hardwood that had been grooved in there, you know, that, that make it more likely that the kid is going to wind up with a weight problem because that they were fat when they were 13. Not true. It's absolutely, totally fallacious, okay? That kid could be uh, a fat person until they're 47 years old, and then at 47 years old, they decide to change their diet and lifestyle and then the weight's gone permanently, okay? So this is a dynamic issue, so therefore there's no urgency on getting anybody on board. They'll get on board when they feel like getting on board, when they're motivated to get on board and whenever that is. Uh, so I've talked to so many parents. I've got parents that have two, three kids, you know, and one of them is a little plant-based monster and that's how they're going to live right in the teeth of everybody else that isn't going to do it. It's like, that's fine. So you got one out of three, one out of two, zero out of four. It's like, it's, it's in them. It's part, part of who it is that they are. And so therefore we can encourage them, but look at it as encouraging people to learn how to play the piano. That's what it is. So they either kind of into it or they like it or et cetera. Mostly, most people will be um, not adverse to eating some healthy food because it feels pretty good in digestion. It has some decent taste to it. And so, but they won't prefer it. They'll prefer macaroni and cheese to some, uh, you know, to vegetarian uh, pasta, okay? So that, that's what, that's how it's going to go down. So what are you going to do? The answer is you're going to have healthy foods around. So there's going to be some things that, you know, they could take some of it if they wanted to. Pay attention to what it is that they like. And let's morph, you know, the stuff that make sure there's things around that they like. Don't try to you know, have, you've got some list somewhere that they should be eating broccoli because it's supposed to be good for them. It's like ridiculous. You know, feed them whatever the plant food it is that they like. It's just as good as broccoli. Okay, there's no there's no advantage to blueberries over oranges. It's all the same. Okay, so don't rank order these things as if there's fancy whole natural foods that are superior to other whole natural foods. That that is a fallacy. So the uh, find out what is it they like. Almost everybody likes some degrees of whole natural foods. Make those available. And that's that. Be willing to throw some of it out a lot. Uh, but they're not going to eat that much of it. But you'll gauge it and learn it. But uh, that's all you can do. In other words, uh, I wouldn't preach too hard. I would keep the humility about it so that you don't wind up with, you know, argumentative and, and uh uh, oppositional stuff. It's like, hey, this is what I think is true. You know what I mean? I'm not sure. I'm not sure these guys are right about everything. That seems to be, seems to work for me. And I like it. And that's that. That's all. That's how I would quote, encourage husband and children to join you. They're not going to join you. You're somebody that loves to play the piano three hours a day. They're somebody that wants to play it for 30 minutes a week. Realize that that's the truth of the matter. 
And all, all you can do is introduce them to piano and see how, how, they, how it takes. And that's all we can do. Well, is there a worse way to go about this? Yeah, a worse way would be fear mongering, you know, basically all, all the notion that this is, you know, oh my God, you're setting yourself up to have breast cancer at 32 if you eat these, you know, phytoestrogens. This is all ridiculous. You know, so the, uh, I, I've heard, I hear so much incorrect statistics uh, in this arena. It, it, I, I could literally spend the rest of my lifetime writing books and lectures that are just es essentially um, completely cascading in on all of the whole uh, foods, plant-based authors that basically say things that are not true and hyperbole. Okay, so, oh, if you drink, you know, two glasses of wine a week, that doubles your risk of breast cancer. Not true, people. It's just, there is one fear-mongering thing after the next. Keep in mind the difference between a healthy eater and a terrible eater is very narrow. Why? This, this body was designed by nature for one fundamental problem, and the fundamental problem was starvation. Okay? It's like you can feed it garbage, and it, 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 can, it can turn that garbage into ferrofaucet. Okay? I mean, ferrofaucet basically ate garbage most of her life. In other words, this... This thing is a remarkable piece of biological equipment. So obviously, if you, you know, completely overburden it with just extraordinarily bizarre looking, you know, balance of the diet, basically, if you starve it out from the one macronutrient that it's massively deficient in, which is fiber, okay, you basically just you know, process the daylights out of the plant food, add a tremendous amount of animal food, and you just get rid of all the fiber that was designed by nature to be in that diet. If you do that, you will uh, cause that system to be living at a level of toxicity and the eliminative organs working hard enough to detoxify the system. But it's going to give out about 4% ahead of time where it would have. It, it will live 96% of the lifespan that it was designed to live, and it's gonna leave 4% of that life on the table. Fair enough, okay? So, but keep in mind, so what's the wrong way to do this? Fear-mongering, hyperbole, incorrect uh, analysis of the facts. Uh, your job is to, you know, for, you know, if you're a mom or a parent or a coach or a best friend or a spouse, it's like, hey, Introduce people to some very reasonable ideas, do them yourself, and have the humility that you don't have the answers to all the world's ills, okay? It's like, hey, this is what I do. It seems to be working for me. I think some of these ideas make some sense. Not sure they're right about everything, but hey, this is how I'm going to do things for now. It seems to be working for me right now. That's how I would do it. Would your answer have changed at all if the reason she was asking, like, because she needed support, because she needed to be a, in a clean environment, because, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, would it have changed at all, depending I on- I don't think so, because the truth of the matter is that they have every bit as much right to pursue their interests as you have to pursue yours. Even if they're very young children? Well, I mean, let's think about that. So- the uh, young children, you exercise some, obviously, a lot of control. Okay, so so now you, you don't have the problem with your very young children. You got a problem with your spouse. And so now, 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 this is where the rubber is hitting the road. 
So the um, so that now what are we going to do about that? So I, I think uh, with your young children, the, as I've I've said before, the only thing that I would be going after um, in children's lives that would be important for me to be not violating would be I'd be keeping out of keeping them out of dairy products. That is specifically because of the association of dairy products with autoimmune disease. Okay, so uh, other than that, you know, Coca-Cola, potato chips, no, that's not that's not associated with any known pathology that those people are going to be facing for the next 50 years. So they will be they will be deciding their own health fates, uh, fates later. Now, I'm not going to be feeding them that stuff. I'm going to be feeding them healthy food. But if my spouse is going to want to have some nut or butter sandwich cookies and the kids want some, I'm not I'm not going to get in the way of that. Unless you want to have that showdown fight with your husband about this, but that's going to be a problem. Okay, so anyway, the uh, what what am I trying to? The, the question was getting them to go along with me, and the answer is mm, I don't think they're going to go along with you. You can you can you can basically change their environment up that they're going to do one notch healthier job, maybe a couple of notches, but. Other than that, they'll go along with you if it makes sense to them, okay? In terms of planning the environment out for yourself, it's like, well, this is going to be a big-time showdown between you and whatever adults or teenagers are in the room, okay? So uh, I don't I don't think that you're going to be able to pull that off. You can, you can um, depends on who those personalities are and, and whether or not they are willing to do that. But that's a, that's a hell of a sacrifice to be asking somebody, uh, uh, to do. So in general, I think that your best move in that regard is to essentially sequester your own food location wise in your own house so that you have your own internal boundary lines about how it is that you, you know, you don't cross the Rubicon and go into their stuff. You stay on your side of the line. That's how I would do things. Okay. Well, you're a reasonable person though. <laughs> See, <laughs> well, we're gonna have one day. Uh, well, you could have Doug's and Alan's answer, or you could have Doug's and AJ's answer. And those things are gonna look different. Well, you know what? You have um, gifted me with the most wonderful gift. You both, you and Dr. Goldhammer, coming on the show as an extra special thing on my birthday, and maybe we can kind of do that. You know? Oh, we, we no worries. Oh, I wanted to put a quick shout out, and that is that. Um, I've said this before, but uh, we didn't scratch anybody out of the woodwork. But I have a uh, a lady, a wonderful lady. She's a very hardworking professional, uh, lives by herself in Austin, Texas. And she uh, she could be a, very helpful for her life to have a cook. She's one of these people that not everybody's in a situation where this is reasonable for them, but it is reasonable for her given her uh, profession and how much she works, et cetera. Anyway, she she would be if there is somebody out there that knows some student at UT Austin or you've got a, a cousin that's out of work that's pretty good in the kitchen. This this lady would be happy. She's very easygoing, very nice lady. Um, yeah, but but she'd be happy to pay somebody fifty dollars an hour for kind of a one day a week kind of a gig in order to get some help to make her life uh, work better. So. If anybody has any ideas on that, if they've got somebody that might be interested, um, like I said, some, you know, a grad student or an undergrad or a responsible kid in your church or yourself, or, you know, if anybody had uh, one day-ish a week 
to devote to this thing. This could, you know, be, could be well worth a lot while working for a really nice person. And uh, just email me and uh, Dr. Doug Lyle at yahoo.com. And just let me know if you, if anybody's got any ideas. So that's, that's that. I meant, meant to say that again and didn't get it done. You said that once and I, I, I didn't talk to her, but I recommended you there is an SOS free vegan restaurant that even Dr. Esselstyn likes called Casa de Luz and they can make her meals. Has she contacted them? Uh, I think um, I'm not so sure that there is such a place. And I don't know, that, uh, I don't think it's SOS free. Okay, so this is what, and I think they went out of business. Okay, so Casa de Luz. Okay, I have two friends that are on the show regularly that both huh? live in Austin. And then, of course, Rip, I'll text them as we get on to the no, next don't question. Don't bother with Rip. I already asked him. Okay, Casa de Luz. Yes, uh, they've been in the queue to be on the show. I don't think they're out of business, but I'll find okay. out. I'll, I'll find out before you. You, before you answer the next question. I'll right. find okay. out. Okay. Okay, so this is from Marjorie. Mm -hmm. And she said, Dr. Lyle, I was on a weighing and measuring program that I was very successful on. I have now been tracking, weighing and measuring my calories, macros for four years, which has helped me maintain my 55 pound weight loss. Mm -hmm. What is your best advice for people who are now tracking, weighing and measuring every single meal as not to exceed calories and hit their daily macros? It has very much helped me, but it has become such a chore. It's stressful to do it but it's stressful to think about not doing it. Thanks for your insight. And I could have sworn that in the class, she said that when she stops, she gains like five to nine pounds, but I, I, I could be making that up. Right, well, let's talk about that. So um, the, the this is how I would look at that. In other words, the why, why would we weigh and measure? And the answer is, there would be various reasons, but the most fundamental reason is, is that we fear that if we don't do that, we're going to gain weight. That, that is the, that is the fundamental reason. So notice that there was two things involved there. There's the fear of the gaining weight, and then there's the gaining of weight. So two different aspects of the problem. So the person is trying to get rid of the fear that they're going to gain weight. And they're also trying to get rid of the idea that they, that they actually would gain weight. So, um, so that's what's happening there. Now, so there's a, there's an underlying hypothesis and the hypothesis is, is that if I weigh and measure the food, uh, this is gonna be successful, but if I don't weigh and measure the food, then I'm not gonna be successful, okay? So therefore, if I don't weigh and measure the food, we get the anxiety that we may gain the weight and then we may gain the weight, okay? So when we have, uh, so what we're living with, what we're living under is uh, the anxiety. So the anxiety is a, an unpleasant, low-grade chronic fear uh, that is sitting underneath that this person's life and that's leading them to this sort of, you know, uh, extra effort uh, to try to stop. It. Now, there's nothing in principle wrong with this. Okay? So uh, it's it, so if you're willing to pay the price of the extra effort. To try to keep that anxiety down, then okay, you know. So this is I've had people that wash their hands twenty times a day. It's like okay, you know, you're not you're not a fanatical OCD person that's washing your hands nine nine times an hour, but you're washing your hands twenty times a day. It's you know, it's not too big of a price to pay, but it's also not nothing, you know. So I don't know how many times I wash my hands a day, four, five, six, maybe. 
Yeah, so if it's 20, maybe it's not too unreasonable. So if you've got a routine and you're able to weigh and measure your food, and this has kept all this weight off of you for a long time, uh, maybe it's not too onerous of a routine. And it doesn't sound like it probably is that onerous of a routine. However, um, you may want to be dispensed with that routine, which means we're, we have to face the anxiety. Okay, and so what, what do we do? How do we get rid of anxiety? Well, the way we get rid of anxiety is to actually expose ourselves to the thing that we fear the most. That's how you get rid of the anxiety. So we would get rid of the anxiety by not weighing and measuring and seeing whether or not you gain weight. Okay, so, okay. So, oh my God, I don't know that I could do that. Well, you could do it, okay, so, uh, so you could test it. So we could start out by testing it for a week, okay? And so, well, I don't know, yeah, my, my friend, Dr. Laura Bruce might have to start out by just doing it for a day. I don't know what she would do. She's the master of, of anxiety problems. So it would be something like that. I mean, it might be three days. So you might go three days uh, a week, and then the other four days you weigh and measure, and then the next three week you do it three days, and then we, you know, for three days you don't do that, then we weigh and measure for four days, and we just keep doing that like this. And two months from now, we find out if you've gained any weight. If the answer is no, then it's like, huh, three days a week, I don't weigh and measure. But then that four seems to you know, settle the problem. Maybe now we're going to tip it over. We're going to do four days where we don't weigh and measure and three days where we measure. And we're going to go to the next two months. And at the end of that two months, we're going to find out, huh, what do you know? Still haven't gained any weight. Okay, well, what about five days? See how, See where we're going. So we're, this is a known as graded exposure. So we would take this problem apart a little bit at a time. Uh, and we would uh, have you find out from your actual living evidence whether or not your body can manage this problem without you grabbing around the throat and trying to control it, you know, the way you are. So that's, that's what I would uh, suggest that you, you know, do something like that. Uh, you might start out two days a week not weighing and measuring and five where you weigh and measure. That might be a good place to start. Start wherever it is that you've got the, the ability to tolerate that anxiety. We begin there and then we stepwise move ourselves towards the discovery of whether or not you can actually trust your hunger blood. Um, Dr. Lyle, Linda, who's watching a different Linda who's watching live, said that uh, reminded me to tell you about Whole Harvest. That's a new whole food plant-based food delivery service that is truly SOS free. And it's pretty good. I've tasted it. Yeah. Okay. Good. I will pass that on and we'll see. And I have a discount code, so I'll I'll email you the information. Yeah, I don't need a discount code. I don't want any little numbers and hassles. I don't even want to think about it. Okay. okay. All right. All righty then. Okay, this next question don't is... I don't want a coupon. I don't want anything to clip. I don't want a number to remember. I don't want a password. Nothing. Uh, <laughs> That's yes. my personality. Okay, And, and um, we're getting confirmation that Casa de Luz is open and it's open seven days a week from Good. 7 to 8.30 p.m. All righty. All right, uh, we'll look into it. This is from Christy. Do you think there is a health and fat loss benefit to doing mono-style meals on a regular basis instead of wide variety meals that are currently so popular? I see very healthy looking and acting people that keep it simple. For example, AJ with her 
broccoli and sweet potatoes? Um, not particularly. I don't think that there's any particular advantage. Um, I think that that you're going to um, you're going to find that that people who are able to stick to very simple meals are people that are you know that that have a, a personality structure in this area that's conducive to success. Okay, so I think we're going to discover that a lot of the people that are successful keep things pretty simple, and uh, that's because they don't have the openness and sort of the adventurousness of their palate uh, that that leads them and that will can, uh, expand the circle and widen it out. And then pretty soon we're, we're back into cheese fondue. So I, I think that you can make a correlation coefficient mistake. Uh, and that is that you can see a correlation coefficient between what people are doing and their success. And you can assume that it's what they're doing that's causing the success rather than the personality that's generating it. So uh, AJ in principle wouldn't have any more problems uh, uh, if if I brought her from you know an organic farm steamed up you know seventeen different whole natural foods and we found out which ones she liked and she liked thirteen of them and I brought those you know every day all steaming and perfect and ready to go and that's what she ate every day that she would be no more successful or less successful on that program than on the one that she's on okay so. The, um, so the simplicity is, is simply a derivative of a nervous system that is not, you know, that is, uh, that, that is essentially not so adventurous as to wander itself into trouble. That's the biggest issue. I Good just, question. I have no problem with variety. I like it, but I'm busy and it's just easier simplicity. That's, yeah. that, I, w I never did it because I thought I would lose more weight. It just, it's just easier. Just happened that way, right? So it's not going to make any difference in your intake if you're eating um, 800 calories of sweet potato, or you're eating 200 calories of corn, 200 calories of green beans, 200 calories of sweet potato, and 200 calories of rice. It's, it will not make any difference at all. Right. Mostly, it's laziness. But you understand that it couldn't make any difference in principle. The uh, evolution could not have could not have engineered that to come out differently. Uh, evolution is engineering you to to eat a certain amount of food a day for, for what's optimum for your health as long as it's food con uh, consistent with your natural environment that's what's going to happen so evolution couldn't make it that oh if it's one type of food then eat less of it uh, -uh. that that's a recipe for starvation okay so so that's that's how to understand why it is that it's not a problem having more variety. It's just more hassle. Right. I mean, if variety is available, like at a, a, a plant-based conference or a whole food salad bar, I, I don't just limit my things to two, but from a food prep standpoint, it's just, it's just easier. I don't, I don't require as much variety, I guess. Exactly. All good. Yeah. But it was never intentional. I just found things I liked and I stuck to it. This is from Renee. If it's too personal, don't answer. But she says she's a diehard fan of yours and is often amazed by the fact that you can answer all of these types of questions from all of the people. Who do you talk to when you have troubles or issues that bother you? Like, is is there a Doug Lyle for a Doug Lyle? No. No. I, uh, the, uh, certainly that's going to be true when a specific uh, there's all kinds of people that I'll talk to that that have specific knowledge that I don't have. 
that either somebody I'm talking to needs that knowledge or I need that knowledge for some strange reason. So, you know, uh, the but, but what we're talking about, uh, what I can answer well are problems that are going to be particularly associated that are psychological. So I'm not going to know, I'm not nearly as knowledgeable about about food and diet and health as John McDougall or Alan Goldham or anybody like that. So they, they're going to know nuances of that arena that I don't know. I know basic principles that I can trust, uh, but but I'm not that knowledgeable about these kind of fine details. The uh, But what I'm knowledgeable about is I'm knowledgeable about how motivation works. That I do know. And so so many of the things that we're always talking about come down to uh, uh, motivational issues and what that sounds kind of sort of inspiring or scary or whatever it is, but all motivation is, is it's, it's the, it's the fundamental nature of animal life. So I'll just explain this very briefly so that you can understand why I don't need a consultant, uh, uh and, and that, that I can answer any problem that is related to this, because it's actually fundamentally, it's pretty complicated but it's really no more complicated than an automobile engine. It, it's, it's about as complex as an internal combustion engine. And so since I've been working on internal combustion engines for 40 years, <laughs> okay, if you've been working on the internal combustion engine, if you've been working on the, the 350, uh, 351 cubic inch uh, Ford motor out of Windsor, you know, for 30 years or 40 years, you're an expert at that engine, okay? And that's what human beings are. Human beings are, uh, I could, can't, couldn't do the truck engine, that would be a cat. So don't, don't, you know, don't talk to me about your dog and your dog's psychology problems because I, I won't know what to do. But humans, yeah, humans I know. I've been doing nothing but working on humans uh, for my whole life. And so, and the basic problem is, looks like this, that, that humans have conflicts. Okay. They have conflicts with other humans and they have conflicts within themselves about alternative courses of action. That sounds terrible. Oh my God, we have conflicts. Not terrible. It's the nature of life. Okay. The nature of life is that the minds of animals are designed by nature to look at an array of options for their behavior and choose the best one. So that's what, that's what a mosquito is doing every second of its life. When it's hovering around and moving a little to the left, a little to the right, and then it goes to the light, and then it goes over here. It's all it's doing. Every second, it's processing new information about what it's picking up from the environment, and it's making a choice. And you're like, well, that's kind of a funny-looking thing. Is that a choice? It's like, yeah, it's as much of a choice as you make. They, 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 are, they don't have the internal dialogue that you have, but they're having exactly the same machinery process. So when a human is struggling, has any kind of distress, upset, anger, frustration, sadness, depression, anxiety, all of those things are nothing other than signals about conflicts. That's all they are. So then all we have to do is we have to just ask a few questions. Okay, well, what's that conflict about? You know, what's the core of that conflict? The conflicts are about really just a few things. They're, they're fundamentally about resources. So uh, that's the job of animals is to uh, act, i.e. to they, they have a motive. Why? Because they want a resource or they want to protect a resource. So fundamentally, you're just either going to acquire a resource or you're looking to protect a resource. And you're like, OK, well, that sounds pretty simple. It shouldn't be that tough. Well, what if you want to eat chocolate cake, but be thin? What's that? 
<laughs> That's a conflict between two resources. Okay. So you eat the chocolate cake and you got one set of neural circuits telling you that you just got a bunch of survival enhancing stuff. And then the other thing, another set of neural circuits you've learned told you, uh-oh, no, that's going to make me fat and therefore make me less attractive and therefore make me less valuable in the village and therefore less likely to be saved. If everybody's drowning, they're, they're not going to save me first. Okay. So you're, you're designed by nature to negotiate conflicts. And then often those conflicts are represent dilemmas. And then it's difficult to try to figure out, gee, which should I do? And that's where we turn to people for advice. Okay. So, and then what we're trying to do is trying to get more information about the details of that conflict. So for example, today we talked to this lady that has, you know, essentially achieved very successfully did a great job in terms of having her diet together. It didn't matter that she was weighing and measuring. It's what she was eating is what was the engine her, of her success, okay? If she was weighing and measuring Stouffer's lasagna every night, this wouldn't have worked. She would have failed, okay? So she weighed and measured food that was sufficiently healthy that she lost a bunch of weight. Now, what does she have? She's got conflicts over the time and energy about the, the continued weighing and measuring process. Okay, so how are we going to then figure out that, the answer to that problem? We're going to run an experiment. Okay, so when you don't know the right answer to do, the right thing to do is to run the most intelligent experiment that you can figure out how to run, right? So in this case, we uh, we might say, okay, you can imagine, well, let's start with one meal a week on Saturday morning. Don't make, weigh and measure that. You, know, you, you can see how absurd that we can make this experiment. We could literally add one, you know, one day a week, we can move it then to two meals, then to three meals, et cetera. And we would keep gathering data so that the nervous system can look and see the hard evidence of what's coming out of the experiment. And you could see how I think that this would work. I think that pretty soon we're doing three, four or five days a week and the person goes for, for three weeks and it turns out, no, still haven't gained any weight. Like, ah, so we, we let the nervous system learn about what the truth is with respect to the conflict that they've been in. The conflict has been about uncertainty about what the truth is. And that's generally where, what is at the root of conflicts. I'm not sure whether I should do this or do that. I don't have enough information to tell me for sure. So therefore I'm in cognitive dissonance about which way I should go, okay? So that's why I can break down these problems. So if someone gives me a problem that I can't break down, I'll be very excited about that. <laughs> I'll be like, okay. And you know what? Across my career for 40 years, I've been thrown very many problems that basically had me freezing my tracks and thinking, huh, how would I solve that problem? And then I have to go through this process of breaking it down into the fundamental parts, okay? So all it, it's all in there. It's just an automobile engine. And if something is squawking and making a noise or not working properly, that's what you, you can feel it. Just as you, you know, a master mechanic can listen to an engine and tell you, eh, that fourth cylinder is flaky. There's something wrong with it, okay? The engine's working pretty well, but it can it can feel it, okay? Well, you can feel it when something isn't working quite right, and you can articulate it to me 
And in the English language, you can give me clues and I can listen to that and ask you more questions. And just like a mechanic, I can be like, hmm, I think it's the four cylinder. Okay, that's what I think it is. And this is what we would do to isolate that out and see if that's true. Okay, so that that's why. So Renee's question is a good one, and I'm happy to brag about the the solution to it for a few minutes. But in doing this, I'm trying to explain it's not that mysterious. It's not a superpower. It's actually just incredibly logical. Um, I feel blessed to have understood this, and I can tell you, the day I got my PhD, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so just like, uh, you know, a young mechanic out of mechanic school, pretty good, you know what I mean? They're pretty good. They, they know some things pretty well. You'll meet a young person now and then that's pretty darn good at their job. But um, but I, I'll take Peter Sultana right today on a medical question above the guy who graduated number one from Harvard Medical School last year. Okay. That kid may be brilliant, whoever he or she is, but I'll take Peter because Peter's been at it for 30 years and he's done an awful lot of mechanics work. And so that's, you know, the, the grayer you are, hopefully you're still getting better. <laughs> and that's the story. Yeah, it's his birthday this week. Oh my goodness. I'm yep. not even going to ask because Peter Sultana to me is about 33. That's that's the that's the vision that I have for Peter for my whole life. He's After like about 40. He, he's like Peter Pan. He doesn't age. He looks amazing. <laughs> yep. Yep. So here's from Anonymous. All right. I listened to your latest Beat Your Genes podcast, and I understand your disavowal of attachment theory and find it hopeful that we humans are more resilient in adapting to early loss than we realize. Sure. However, I believe develop, developmental trauma to young children in the case of alcoholic parents has negative consequences that must be dealt with in order to recover from. What do you recommend? How about early 12-step programs like Alatine? Uh, it's not true. Okay, so what, what you believe to be true turns out to not be true. So you're thinking that these people have developmental problems. We'd have to delineate exactly what it is that you mean by that. What developmental problem do you think that people have as a result of being the children of alcoholics? So all of the research that has studied adult children of alcoholics, a fancy acronym ACOA, it turns out, no, there is no personality characteristic and no uh, future life problems that happen in adulthood that are correlated with being an ACLA. Yeah. So that's that. End of story. Uh, so therefore, you do not need to take these people through some process. They don't need to go to ACOA meetings. There isn't anything. Now, uh, is that to say, and, and it's important when I Unfortunately, these things are so charged because people have heavy investments in some of these ideas. And so therefore, uh, sometimes they it's hard for them to hear exactly what it is that I'm saying. So if you were bullied as a child, it's not having any influence on you now when you're 36. That's not the reason you're having the troubles that you're having. Now, is it unpleasant that you were bullied? Yes. Is it wrong that you were bullied? Yes. 
Do I think that it is of no consequence? Well, of course it's a consequence. It made you suffer when you were seven years old that you were being bullied. That's that's just as big a part of your life from year seven to eight as the year from 87 to 88. Like, why is it that it, you know, that it has to be, you know, that that year is important. So I care about the fact that people have been abused, traumatized, been through tough things, but those things came and went. Okay. And now the question on the table uh, in psychology is, do those things, you know, wreck something? Do they compromise the person's ability to get a job, to be married, to be happy, to uh, raise children? In other words, if I was abused as a child, is that more likely to make me abuser? Absolutely not. Has no influence at all. Okay, that that is a total fallacy that is perpetrated you know, in, in, you know, social work and social psychological circles. Not so. Okay. So the, um, it, it doesn't make you less likely to abuse your child, but it doesn't make you more likely to abuse your child. Okay. So it's not related to it. Now, was it a bad thing that had happened to you? Of course it was a bad thing that had happened to you. It was a bad thing that, that happened to you. Does it make you more likely to be an alcoholic or a bad credit or, walk off a job or get a divorce. None of those things. It's not related. Okay. So this is people have a, uh, a deep seated misunderstanding of the nature of human development. They, they believe the traumatic events early in life. I mean, this was Freud's thesis that the reason why people have problems is they've got quote, unresolved conflicts from childhood. That dude didn't know anything. But that dude casts a giant shadow over the way that people think today. Had he not existed, then I don't know what people would think today. But he certainly was and has been a towering figure in the sociology of psychology. In other words, what what is the what do people believe? What is the zeitgeist of the culture? Freud casts a giant shadow over this. The, um, and so, you know, this is what he, I believe he honestly believed it. And so he was totally wrong. It's simply not true. So that's why, for example, all, all of the psychodynamic theorists from Sigmund Freud to, you know, to, uh, Jung, to Adler, to Anna Freud, to Melanie Klein, to, you know, all of these people. All of them have their theories about personality and all of them have been proven wrong. When I say proven, I'm saying proven, okay? None of the things that they believe are true are correlated with anything that happens in, in the development of an adult personality. The only thing that correlates is genetics. None of them knew this, okay? So they literally believed that the processes that children were going through were resulting in their personalities. Of course they did. And let me tell you, I had a very, very smart young man who's in school now for psychology write to me. And he, he said, do you think that the reason why that people believe this is this or that? And I stared at that email and I thought, kid, you just came up with a doozy. And I'm going to steal it. And I'm putting it in my book. <laughs> okay. What he said was, because he's in school now, some fancy school uh, in England. 
he said, you know, as he's studying all this stuff and he's studying it, knowing what the truth is, but he's seeing, you know, looking at the history and listening to the other theories, he says, you know, do you think, Dr. Lyle, that the reason why that we believe this is because the human being is born so prematurely relative to other animals that that we see them all incredibly similarly when they're born because they are so similar because they're basically a vastly premature organism and that it's going to they, they won't actually be the equivalent of a newborn calf or a newborn horse for like six or seven years and that's true a newborn horse can run about as fast as its mother in like an hour and so a child, think about that. They are incredibly helpless. And as a result of that, they, they are being, they were designed by nature in a unique species to be born unbelievably helpless. And they are going, because why? A massive brain and a tiny little body that doesn't even know what it's doing. So it has to go through effectively a developmental process outside the womb for several years. What if children were born about the competence and size that they are at age seven? If they were born at age seven and they, they came out of there, they already knew the language, okay? You'd look at them and you'd be like, wow, they are so individually different. You'd like, they just came out, look at that. That one is super outgoing and chattering around with its friends and wants to play on the playground. That one wants to argue with everybody. That one's really shy. You'd look at these individual differences and you'd know for sure it wasn't a social process that caused it. It was genetic. It's how they were born. Okay. And I thought, my God, he's solved the riddle. That is exactly why people have believed this. This is why the Nazis thought, give me the seven years and I'll give you the kid. It's like, this is why they thought that. They, people are thinking they are watching a process of development and they are watching a lot of little imitative processes and they'll even swear the way their parents do. And so they'll watch this little process and they'll think, oh, it's, it is the process that's causing the outcome. And it's like, no, 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 no. You, you, you don't understand what you're looking at. How, how could they? How could Freud or Jung or Adler or Anna Freud or Melanie Klein, how could any of these people, they could not have known, nobody knew. This was not known until 1985. Okay, all those people were dead. So the, the disgust that I have with psychodynamic thinking is not with those people because they were pioneers and they were doing their damnedest. And what they thought made sense. What's disgusting to me now is some PhD or MD psychiatrist or something that is promulgating this stuff. And it's like, buddy, you should know better because this was solved 40 years ago. This was solved at the University of Minnesota. And there's been 2,700 studies published since, for God's sakes, and all of them say the same thing. So, no, we don't need to worry about, quote, you know, children of alcoholics. We need to worry about that they suffer under the anxiety and they watch the process, it is not pleasant, but it is not changing their personality in any fundamental way that you will ever be able to measure that will impact any life outcome that you will ever see, okay? That, that personality was 
was that who they were going to be in terms of how impulsive, how angry, how emotionally regulated, how open, how intelligent, how uh, argumentative, how emotionally stable, how neurotic. That was decided at conception. Okay, that's when that was decided. Okay, so their life course, you know, is going to have good, bad, and different things happen to it. But that person, you don't need to worry about that person's personality as a 25-year-old adult. Because that personality as a 25-year-old adult was, was going to be what it was going to be. Uh, and that's how that works. So you don't agree with the statement, the issues are in the tissues? Because even your colleague, Dr. Hawk, seems to be uh, supporting some of these um, ideas now. No, she's view. listening to ideas from other people, but she's not She's not supporting those ideas. That's different. So Jen, Jen is very open. Okay, so she's going to listen to other people in a way that I don't. Uh, I don't because I'll tell you who I listen to. I listen to the world's leading authority and personality. His name is Robert Plumman. Okay, so if you actually want to, uh, if, you know, and, and listen to who it is that's saying it. I'm a person who taught personality at Stanford University. Who do I listen to? I listen, listen to Robert Plumman. That's who I listen to. And if you want to actually find the facts out and not, you know, uh, entertain unsupported hypotheses, that have had no support at all, even though they've been looked at vigorously for 50 years, longer. Okay, the developmental psychologists have been at this since John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth, clear back to the 1940s. This is the 100 year journey empirically and 150 year journey theoretically. So, however, what have we come to? You know, sometimes the facts of what it is that we have discovered are not something that squares very well for human beings, either logically or because it is unpleasant. And I think that in this case, the answer is both. It is not, it doesn't seem logical that our personalities are determined at conception. That's because we watch these little children from the day they're born to the, the time they're 10. We watch different things emerge and we look at patterns in families and we feel like, well, that must be due to imitation, okay? I want you to check yourself if you think that it's due to imitation by understanding that adoptive children do not resemble their adoptive parents in any way. You can put a child that comes from two ADIQ parents in with a brilliant Nobel Prize winning people and that child's IQ will be 80, okay? You can put a child of two brilliant people in a hobble with people with 80 IQs, and that person is going to be a world beater. You could put, you know, you could, you know, in other words, you can put people, you can put Shaquille O'Neal's son with Danny DeVito and leave him there on the doorstep. Okay, and you're going to think, oh, well, we're going to turn him into an actor with a great personality. And that's really cool with stage presence. Uh, uh You're going to get a six foot 11 basketball player. That's what you're going to get. If you think that that's not what you're going to get, you're out of your mind. That's exactly what you're going to get. OK, we believe that these personality issues are malleable because you watch them emerge in childhood. 
The they are not. Okay. People have vicissitudes in life, but that doesn't change their personalities. They go through a couple of tough years over some loss, but then their personality and their baseline reemerges. This is what has been discovered. This is a, an amazingly resisted reality. And I think it's resisted for more than one reason. But the number one reason is it's an illusion that we believe we are watching children imitate their way to be like their parents. I'm telling you, we already know that isn't true because adoptive children do not imitate their adoptive parents, not even 1%, not 1%. You will not, an adoptive child, if the parents are 90th percentile extroverted and the child comes from two parents who are 20th percentile extroverted, that child will be a 20th percentile on the introversion extroversion scale. They will not be 50. They're not going to take some from the environment. It's not nature and nurture. Uh-uh. Not true. Okay? So what I can tell you is that fact defies human observation because you see characteristics run in families. So you swear it's got to be that they're imitating. And after all, they're imitating accents. Why aren't they imitating then how it is that they think? And the answer is, well, you imitate accents. That's true. That's a species typical mechanism for picking up stuff from the environment, but it is not causing the way the brain works to otherwise, it is not causing the nature of the person's thought or motivational processes to change at all. They are not doing any imitation at all, okay? That is incredible. Uh, as one, as one uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist said, what happened to me? I gave birth to two guitarists. It's like, yeah, his wife was musical. It's like, that's that. Those kids had no interest in what it is that he was interested in. It's a crapshoot, okay? But it's not shaped. The personalities are not shaped by environmental processes. That is one of the most difficult, puzzling, you know, things. And it also causes people to be upset and unhappy. Because it's like, really? It doesn't make any difference? It's like, not to your kid's personality. Gee, you know, if my kid's kind of anxious, can I get them to be more outgoing? No, you cannot. Okay. The uh, some experts have said that Jerome Kagan thought that, you know, he's Harvard University developmental psychologist 30 years ago. He 40 years ago, he was sure he could do it. He did not. He failed. Okay. Nobody can change this. So your uh, you put you now. Here is the important lesson. The important lesson for a parent, coach, friend, spouse, anything, okay? What, what is the deal? What, what matters? Well, what matters, people, is the life process, the environmental process, the social and physical ecology of the individual. That's what matters. You can't change their personality. That's fixed, okay? But if I have a little cat that has an average amount of anxiety, and I put that cat in some ghetto somewhere in an alley, okay? The, uh, and and I clip it, it's one of its ears off, so it's a little bit funny looking, and everybody makes fun of it. It's gonna have an incredibly bad life, okay? If I take that cat and I put him with Mabel, you know, in Fresno, a little lady that's gonna, you know, feed this beautiful thing and has a little window that it sits in and it can watch which dogs went on the walks and then it gets to go out in the backyard and sun itself. It's like, it has great life. Same cat, okay? 
So the environment matters in terms of the enjoyment. Now, if I take that cat that just had a great life with Mabel, and then I put him into the into the rough environment, what have I got? A scared, anxious, unpleasant, unhappy, depressed cat, okay? But if I had that cat in that alley for nine years, and then I moved into Mabel's house, what would happen? Would it still be scared, anxious, nervous, et cetera? Not for very long. It would go through a process of analyzing its new environment, and after a few weeks, that cat would be purring and happy and jumping on Mabel's lap, and everything's cool, okay? That's the nature of personality of animals, and that's the nature of human personality, and that is why we do not need to worry about people that have been through tough things and that they need some kind of special guidance or processes. They don't need anything of the kind. They're, what all they need is a decent environment where they're not being abused and, and subject to constant stress. We just take that cat and put it in a decent environment and everything re-regulates. What a blessing that that is in fact the nature of reality and psychology. All Thank right. You. you want to call it a day? Say goodnight, Gracie, or try one yeah. more? No, that's enough for one day. That's good. That sounds great. So we'll, right. we'll see you next month, Dr. Lyle. All right. Very good, folks. Thank you for all. And we'll see you soon, AJ. Thanks for having hey. me. Thank you so much, Dr. Lyle, and thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 10 a.m. Pacific time for Kathy Hester, Super Bowl recipes. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.